Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the 103rd Halley Lecture. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to introduce to you today Professor Evine van Dyssek uh, from Leiden. She is an astronomer and a chemist. Uh, and that's an unusual and very special set of skills. Um, she's the Professor of Molecular Astrophysics at Leiden Observatory in the Netherlands and Director of the Sackler Laboratory for Astrophysics. She's also a member of the Max Planck Institute for Terrestrial Astrophysics in Garching. She did her PhD in Leiden, moved to the United States for a while where she worked in Harvard, the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton and Caltech before she returned to Leiden and became a professor there in 1995. She works on interstellar molecules, star formation, planet formation, submillimeter and millimeter astronomy, and the basic radiative transfer processes that go along with working in that field. She is an extraordinarily eminent astronomer. She's a member of the Dutch Royal, Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences and the US National Academy of Sciences. She's played a crucial role in the development of many of the forefront facilities that astronomers use today, most topically and recently, the ALMA interferometer in Chile, the Herschel satellite, and to be looked forward to, the James Webb Space Telescope, where she was responsible for one of the instruments. She has published an astonishing 370 papers that have been cited over 20,000 times. She's had 34 PhD students. This is uh, a remarkable person who's going to speak to us today. Uh, there's a list of accolades which goes now down from halfway on this page to the entire other side of the page uh, and beyond, but I'm not going to read all those out. I'll just pick a few. Um, she's a gold medal holder of the Royal Dutch Chemical Society. Uh, in 2000, she won the highest scientific war award in the Netherlands, the NWO Spinoza Prize. 2001, the Burke Award of the Royal Society of Chemistry here in the UK. Uh, she's a foreign member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an honorary fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, and just last year became an academy professor of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Evin van Dyssek to deliver the 103rd Halley Lecture, Building Stars, Planets, and the Ingredients for Life Between the Stars. Evin. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Roger, for this very kind introduction, and I want to thank uh, you and the entire uh, department, actually, here at Oxford for inviting me to give this uh, very prestigious lecture, and so I'm really delighted uh, to be here, although it could be a little bit drier. On the other hand, my story is partly about water, so maybe that's sort of <laughs> good, uh, a good omen. Um, so what I'm going to do today is actually take you on a tour of the matter between the, the stars, the interstellar space, and see how, to, how out of this very tenuous material that you see over here, you actually built the, 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 the stars and the planets, uh, planets like our own Earth that we, uh, that we live on. Um, so this is a, a very broad uh, uh, subject, and I'm going to tell it at a very general level, uh, so because I've, there may also be people from the, the general public here, um, but I'll intersperse it with uh, some more detailed uh, recent results uh, to give you a flavor of everything that is happening actually at the moment in this field. 
But before we do so, since this is the Halley Lecture, I want to make a tribute to Edmund Halley and uh, all the work that he has done. And uh, it's actually very relevant to the story that I'm going to tell, because in the end of my lecture, I'll get actually to comets um, and their ingredients. And uh, so what you see here is, uh, is basically one of the apparitions of Halley's Comets in 1986. And of course, then when we could take a first peek at the, 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 the nucleus of a comet and actually see what it is made of and what it looks like. And uh, at the very end, I'll come back to actually how these, uh, uh, these nuclei of comets, these planetesimals, are actually uh, built. Um, but it's not just astronomers that are physicists and scientists that are interested in this story of our origins. It's, you see it also throughout uh, culture in many different ways. And one of my hobbies is actually uh, astronomy and art. And uh, so I like to, to find sort of uh, uh, pictures that, uh, especially paintings, that sort of uh, uh, depict uh, uh, also part of the story. So of course, in the Netherlands, uh, there's Vincent van Gogh with his uh, Starry Nights. He just had to paint this, uh, this picture. If you go to German expressionists, uh, Kandinsky already uh, painted here the stars. And even long before molecular clouds were known, he already has these stars forming somewhere inside the dense clouds. And it's uh, being heated and irradiated by uh, <laughs> some nearby star, as you can see, uh, as it sort of appears like. If you go to another part of the world, here is uh, the Australia Aboriginal Art um, with uh, the Seven Sisters here sitting in the center of the Milky Way, hidden there by uh, their mother, uh, who keeps them away from Orion, which is the old man that is chasing, chasing actually these Seven Sisters. And finally, here in the Pacific Northwest, um, uh, Northern Canada, uh, there is the story of uh, First Raven actually stealing the sun out of a dark box uh, where the moon had put it and then putting uh, uh, the sun up in the sky. So these are all stories about stars, about the origins of stars, uh, the origins of, uh, uh, of planets that you see reflected uh, actually throughout uh, culture. And in fact, of course, uh, uh, Halley's Comet has been an uh, inspiration to many artists as well. Um, the famous uh, Tapestry of Bayeux, here where you see the Halley's Comets, uh, the 1066 appearance, which was particularly bright, uh, which you see up here. Um, but also Giotto, very famous painting in one of the uh, chapels in uh, Florence, um, where you see here, this is not the, the nativity, this is not the Star of Bethlehem, this is actually a comet. Uh, again, inspired by uh, the 1301 appearance of uh, Comet Halley. Um, but even the Native Americans uh, uh, reflected and see that actually in the petroglyphs here again, the, the 1066 appearance, which was so, so prominent. Um, so basically the origin of, of comets and the origins of solar systems is of course a topic that has now become very uh, much in the forefront again with the discovery of exoplanets, planets that circle around stars other than our own sun. And it's only uh, less than 20 years ago that the first exoplanets were discovered. By now it's a field that is really booming. It's one of the fastest growing fields in astronomy. And by now close to a thousand exoplanets have been discovered. And that makes all of these questions as to how these planets were actually formed 
whether these other planetary systems are similar to our own or not, how unique is our own uh, uh, solar system, also in its architecture, um, and which of these planets could actually be habitable. And so that is sort of the context of uh, the story that I'm going to tell you here today. So let's orient ourselves as to where we're going to look. Well, we're going to look very much in the solar neighborhood, uh, close, uh, uh, close to home, so to say, uh, because that's where we have the highest spatial resolution. That's where we can see the sharpest. Um, but all of the processes I'm going to tell you about actually happens throughout our, our entire Milky Way and even in uh, other galaxies out to the edge of the universe. In fact, molecules like water and carbon monoxide have now been seen out to uh, distances corresponding to when the, the, the lifetime of the universe uh, was only sort of 10% of its current age. So really very, uh, very large distances. So, um, so this is basically to remind you where we are actually. We're here, if you would look on top of our own uh, Milky Way, then uh, our star, the Sun, is only one of some hundred, several <coughs> hundred billion stars uh, here in this Milky Way, and then sort of halfway out to the edge of the Milky Way. So where are these stars and planets formed? Well, they are formed in the very tenuous material that is between the stars. It was only sort of around 1900 that astronomers realized that uh, the, the, the regions between the stars were not empty, but filled with a very, very dilute gas. And it's the more denser concentrations of this gas where the stars are being born. So here's a good example uh, of one nebula where we actually have a lot of stars being formed at this moment here in the famous constellation Orion. And here we have then the Orion Nebula. And if you look at it with a more modern telescope, then you see that it's not just a few stars, a few bright stars that were seen uh, already many hundred years ago, um, but you see here actually a nursery of some uh, hundreds, uh, young, uh, several hundred young stars. Now, William Herschel actually speculated already that something like the Orion Nebula, which he was able to see with his little telescope uh, in uh, his backyard, uh, that these were the chaotic material of future suns. But at that time, when uh, Herschel said this, uh, it was not even realized or recognized that uh, stars actually don't have their internal life. Stars actually uh, are born and they also die again. Um, um, and that's, uh, that is an integral part of the, the whole story. So the Orion uh, Nebula is actually one of the uh, prime nurseries of new stars in, uh, in our galaxy. Here you see another image, in this case taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, now on a somewhat larger scale. And you see also these dark regions here uh, appearing. And you see them also in uh, other places, these, these bright nebulae, uh, sort of that's the ionized gas um, that is uh, emitting brightly in the, the optical uh, uh, wavelength regime. Um, but you see also here these, these very dark clouds. And these clouds are dark because they can contain very tiny dust particles small silicate material, small carbonaceous material, which absorbs and scatters the light. And that is why these clouds look so, uh, look so dark. Um, and we can see them then as a silhouette, basically, against this bright background. Now, these uh, clouds are large. Uh, they can be several light years uh, across. 
They can also be very massive. Some of these clouds or the larger cloud complexes can have masses up to 100,000 solar masses, meaning that they have enough material in order to form uh, 100,000 new suns. They won't do that. They actually have a rather low efficiency of forming new stars. But in, in principle, there's lots of material present uh, to do so. <clears throat> so let's look in a little bit more detail at uh, some of these uh, dark clouds. So here you see a, a nice example, actually a rather small uh, dark cloud, also called a coal sack, this one actually on the southern sky. And you see it again hanging here in front of the uh, thousands of stars here in the Milky Way. Um, and uh, these clouds contain about 99% gas, mostly then hydrogen, and about 1% by mass um, of this solid material. And as I mentioned already, this solid material is uh, typically silicate, silicates, uh, think as little uh, sand uh, grains, um, and also carbonaceous material. And it's typically only a, a tenth of a micrometer in size, uh, thousands of a, uh, ten thousandths of a millimeter. So very small uh, dust particles. Uh, but they are responsible for uh, making these clouds look dark, and as we will see, they actually also play a role in shielding the molecules from the dissociating radiation of the uh, stars, and therefore making them survive. These clouds are cold, they are only slightly above the absolute zero, and they have densities of typically about 1,000 particles per cubic centimeter. Now this uh, one cubic centimeter here in this room contains probably of the order of 10 to the 19 uh, particles <laughs> per cubic centimeters. And even a good vacuum in a laboratory on Earth still, some, still has something of the order of, say, uh, 100 million particles per cubic centimeter. So what an astronomer calls a dense cloud is still a much better vacuum than we normally have in a laboratory on Earth. And that is really what makes these clouds also so interesting for chemists, because they are actually a quite unique uh, chemical physics uh, laboratory. So how do we observe these clouds? Um, well, it's nice to see these dark regions here, an optical image, and that certainly recognizes, makes you recognize that there is a cloud there. Um, but if we want to see actually what is inside the, the cloud, then we need to go to longer wavelengths. We basically need to put on other glasses, uh, we put, need to go put on infrared glasses or even longer uh, in order to uh, go to the longer wavelengths where the scattering uh, and absorption of the uh, light is much less. And so you see here an uh, image of the same cloud, but now in infrared wavelengths, and you see that you can now actually see through the clouds and see the background stars, but you can also now actually study the material that is present inside the cloud. So this is actually a nice uh, uh, movie that was made by the Spitzer Space Telescope, uh, a satellite which flew uh, um, between 2003 and 2009. Um, and what we're doing here is we're taking here one of these dark clouds. Um, so these are actual astronomical images actually from one of our programs. Um, and as we go, as we are zooming in, we are also going to do longer and longer wavelengths. And so we're zooming in, and what we see is that uh, the dark regions disappear, and actually inside this dark cloud, there is a young star that is at this moment being formed. And this young star is still trying to push away the surrounding material uh, through the so-called jets, um, winds and jets that uh, it has here in uh, these two directions, in a bipolar uh, direction. 
So the color coding here in this uh, image is such that uh, here is obviously the star, um, but uh, the green is uh, a filter that actually contains uh, hot molecular gas, um, whereas the red filter that you see here is actually a filter that contains emission from very large molecules, the so-called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And so these are actually molecules that are being excited by this radiation and that they emit then in the infrared wavelength range. And let's see, that's what you see here nicely reflected in this, uh, in this image. <clears throat> so astronomy is very much driven by the facilities, by the big telescopes uh, that, can, uh, that allow us to, to observe at various wavelengths. And we have been very fortunate in the last decade to have a number of very powerful telescopes that are very well suited, especially to, to probe into these uh, uh, dark regions. Um, so here are some examples of a space telescope, and I want to mention in particular the Herschel Space Observatory, which is actually the largest astronomical telescope in space. Um, in fact, it ran out of coolant uh, just a few weeks ago, so it was launched in 2009, and it was operative until just a few weeks ago. Uh, but at this very moment, we're still uh, very busy in analyzing all of the results uh, from, this, uh, from this telescope, especially uh, from one of the instruments, the HIFI instrument, that was actually uh, built under the leadership of, uh, of the Netherlands. And of course, we want to go above the Earth's atmosphere because the Earth's atmosphere actually blocks a lot of the radiation and prevents it from coming to Earth. And especially because our, our atmosphere contains so much water um, and uh, oxygen and also CO2, we really have to get above the uh, um, Earth's atmosphere in order to observe these crucial ingredients uh, um, for chemistry. Just to give you an indication of the progress that we actually have made. Um, so 30 years ago, this was sort of the best image that we could take in the far infrared wavelengths range, say around 100 micrometers um, of such a star forming a cloud. It was really not much more than a, a sort of a single pixel on the sky. And uh, if you look basically at the kind of images that uh, Herschel has been returning, uh, then it's really fantastic to see the detail now uh, in all of these uh, molecular clouds. Again, the color coding is uh, such here that blue is actually the shorter wavelengths and red is the, the longer wavelengths. So here we're looking at the somewhat warmer parts of the sky. This cloud is irradiated by a bright star from this, this side. And here we're looking at the somewhat cooler uh, uh, part of the cloud. But all these little uh, point sources that you see over here are actually new stars that are being formed at this uh, very moment. And we see here already filaments and ridges, etc., uh, which is where most of these uh, star formation takes place. But it's really beautiful to see how Herschel has sort of unveiled these, uh, these clouds and that we can now look at them in the, in the thermal emission, basically, that these uh, cold dust grains uh, emit. Similarly, if we go to a somewhat later stage, if we look at uh, where planets are being formed, uh, again, we have come a long way. This is a, a famous uh, graph from the IRES satellite, one of the, the first infrared satellites which saw an, an excess of emission over a stellar photosphere. And uh, now with Herschel, actually, uh, we have been able to make an image. Uh, so what used to be just one flux and a pixel is now a beautiful image here of this, uh, this source, where here we have the star and here we have a ring of uh, cold dust 
um, where uh, this, these, these small dust grains are actually produced uh, by collisions of uh, big, bigger uh, uh, blocks uh, that uh, um, are actually the remnants of planet formation. And I will come back actually to this, this kind of process uh, at the end of uh, my talk. Um, of course, uh, the ground, uh, we also have very powerful telescopes. Uh, we can think of the, the very large telescopes uh, of the European Southern Observatory, um, which are uh, the most, some of the most powerful uh, instruments uh, that we have uh, uh, on Earth. Um, and if we go to longer wavelengths, uh, then we have some of the pioneering millimeter telescopes. Um, I want to mention here, especially the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope, which has been a, and still is a collaboration of uh, um, uh, is it the United Kingdom, so England and the Netherlands and Canada, although the Netherlands just ended its participation, but for many years we have been observing together actually here on this telescope and, uh, and basically opening up the millimeter uh, wavelengths uh, regime. And of course, the, the, the major new facility that has just been inaugurated uh, only two months ago uh, here in Chile is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, uh, ALMA. Here is a picture that's actually uh, representative of that day. Uh, this is a, um, a big collaboration, actually, uh, of uh, the, actually the first worldwide um, uh, collaboration in astronomy, both Europe and North America. Um, and also East Asia coming together to build 66 telescopes on this high site here in Chile. And uh, I'm very pleased to see actually that Richard Hills, who has played a Im very important role in making this uh, telescope actually work, uh, that he's actually here in the audience. And we owe a lot to him and all of his other staff of the observatory to uh, provide us with some of the beautiful images that we are now getting uh, here. And this is what it will look like uh, in uh, about a, a year time when all of the 66 telescopes are there. And I can assure you it is really already a, a breathtaking experience uh, to be there, both literally and figuratively, um, there up there at, at 5,000 meters. Um, ALMA has opened up, up its uh, scientific eyes, so just to give you an impression um, of what the facility looks like. So here is basically at the 3,000 meter uh, level is where the telescopes are being assembled. Um, and then they are put on a big truck and then driven up the, the road here um, to the 5,000 meters um, region where they are being uh, then uh, used for scientific observations. Okay, so that is uh, some of the background then on the uh, facilities that we're using, but the observations are only one part of the story. If you want to learn something about uh, stars and planets, and especially the ingredients that go in there, um, then you have to also combine it with models, and also what I call the laboratory, although that can also be a computer, actually, the laboratory, uh, which provides the critical ingredients for both the observations and the models. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the ingredients that we actually have in these clouds. So this is actually the astronomer's view of the periodic table, um, which uh, emphasizes that <laughs> the universe consists mostly of hydrogen, um, followed by helium, but helium is chemically not that interesting, um, and that the chemically interesting elements like carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen are really way down at uh, the level of a few times uh, 10 to minus 4 with respect to hydrogen. And so what we have is this very tenuous gas, very cold, 
mostly hydrogens. There's here and there an interesting uh, element. These elements may not meet each other, you know, for 10 to the 5 years or so. So chemists had always told astronomers, well, don't bother to even uh, go out and looking for molecules because you simply won't see them. Well, fortunately, the astronomers didn't listen and they tuned their receivers and uh, actually found a, a whole wealth of different molecules there. So this is uh, just an example of the richness of features in the Orion Nebula. So now we are taking Herschel and we're pointing the Hi-Fi instrument, the heterodyne instrument, on the uh, Orion Nebula, and this is an almost complete spectral scan. And this, you see already there are lots of lines there, but just to, to warn you that this is not noise, but if you start to, to blow this up, then we actually see that this little part is actually, uh, uh, they are all, all real lines, uh, there's no, no noise whatsoever that you can see in the spectrum. You see already here patterns of certain molecules, and you can try to assign these, all of these lines, um, if you have enough uh, lab catalogs of, of lines. And then you find that we find, see both simple and also rather complex molecules uh, present in these clouds. So this whole feature, this whole pattern of lines is all due to one molecule, methanol. Um, but you also see simple molecules like sulfur dioxide, several lines over here, and more complex molecules like dimethyl ether or methyl formate. You also can get some kinematic information from the lines. Here you see how beautifully resolved these line profiles are. This is a case of water, and you see already that this water is, uh, is moving actually very fast, uh, up to 100 kilometers per second. So we also get information on the, the kinematics. So just to summarize that, uh, the kind of information that we can actually get here from these, uh, these lines uh, we get information on the, the kinematics, we get from the line intensities, we can, can count basically how many molecules uh, there are and translate that into relative abundances. And then uh, from the line ratios, they tell us something, how often uh, uh, a molecule collides with another molecule uh, in order to get its excitation. And that tells us something about physical conditions like temperatures and densities in these clouds. So these kinds of data, these kinds of spectra actually contain a whole wealth of information with which we can characterize uh, the clouds. Um, just to show you uh, some of the, the molecules that have been detected, um, some of the complex, uh, more complex organic molecules. Um, here is uh, already uh, the dimethyl ether that I mentioned. Uh, some one of the simplest sugars that I'll be talking about a little later um, as well. Um, that uh, glycoaldehyde uh, that is seen, ethanol, is uh, seen in uh, quite uh, substantial abundances. Um, actually, uh, in these clouds, um, molecules like benzene have also been detected. Um, but if we think of molecules that we would need to, to say, as, as prebiotic material, that we would need to, to make, say, DNA and RNA of, of potential life elsewhere in space, uh, one can think of simple amino acids like lysine or bases like purine and pyrimidine. Um, and these have all not yet been detected in space. There have been many claims in the, uh, both in the, the refereed literature and in the press that this molecule has been detected, but so far it has not yet been firmly seen. But this is exactly what's, what ALMA will do because it will have such high sensitivity. It will actually be, show, be able to show how far this chemical complexity can actually go. 
And this little molecule here, caffeine, although not uh, necessarily for the origin of life, is uh, certainly necessary for the maintenance of life. So, <laughs> and that's a molecule that we also still have not yet discovered in space. But uh, you see, it's actually not much more complex than some of the molecules that have been seen. So who knows what, uh, what we will find. Um, even larger molecules are present in space. I mentioned already these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which have a very characteristic infrared emission. In this case, we don't know exactly uh, the, 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 the precise molecule that we have, whether it has 50 carbon atoms or 40 or 60, and how many hydrogens there are. Uh, but we know as a class that these molecules are certainly present. And very recently, actually also the first fullerenes, C60 and C70, were actually discovered in space. Of course, uh, uh, Harry Croto was originally an astrochemist, and he got much of his inspiration for his work on C60 from working on these interstellar molecules and, and wondering if you have uh, these long carbon chains and you start to wind them up, uh, basically what kind of molecules you get. And that's one of the, the, the roads that led him to uh, the discovery of C60. So far, I've been talking mostly as molecules as a gas. But actually, uh, uh, because these grains are so cold, they, they sort of act as a deep freeze um, on which molecules from the gas can uh, basically collide and stick. Much like you can get ice in your freezer or in a cold winter night, you get molecules from the atmosphere that freeze out on your windshield and form a little icy layer. Now, once the molecules and the atoms are on the grains, then other chemical reactions can occur, especially uh, reactions with hydrogen become much more prominent. So you can turn, actually, oxygen into water. And uh, you can turn carbon into methane, and you can turn uh, nitrogen into ammonia. And carbon monoxide, which is another main ingredient of these clouds, you can actually uh, hydrogenate all the way to methanol. And that's actually one of the reasons why methanol is so prominent and why uh, methanol plays also a very important role um, in, uh, in, in interstellar chemistry. So actually in Leiden, in the Sacral Laboratory, we're trying to uh, uh, simulate these uh, processes. Um, of course, we can never simulate all of the conditions. We need to speed it up. We cannot wait for, for 10 to the 5 years for our reactions to occur. Um, but uh, certainly the temperature, uh, we, can, uh, uh, that, uh, we can then also uh, um, basically make sure that we only look at, uh, say, two-body processes that we can actually extrapolate to much longer uh, timescales. Um, so the laboratory is now actually in the, the direction of Harold Willenaerts, and uh, we are doing still continuing to collaborate on a number of processes that are directly relevant for what is happening in interstellar space. So as an example, let me actually tell you the story about water, uh, because water is, of course, one of the main ingredients uh, for, uh, uh, for life on, uh, on other planets. And thanks to the Herschel Space Telescope, we've now been able to obtain uh, quite unique data uh, on water that can tell us and give us insight into questions such as how and where water is formed and how it is actually transported from a collapsing cloud uh, onto a forming planet. So just to show you that uh, this is not just interesting for uh, astronomers, you see quite a lot uh, in the popular uh, literature, uh, this is challenges for life on Mars, and it says just add water. And uh, here is actually what uh, they think that the NASA spacecraft, when it finally gets to a new planet, uh, will actually see in terms of, of water. So it certainly shows the, the importance of water in uh, all of this story.
Um, so the program that we have been carrying out over the last uh, several years is the, the Water in Star Forming Regions with Herschel program, abbreviated as WISH. Um, and this is uh, one of these large collaborations that we now commonly have in astronomy where you actually get uh, quite a number of hours, in this case of guaranteed uh, observing time as a return for building the instrument. Um, and then uh, we have basically a collaboration then between some 70 scientists from 30 institutions uh, that then carry out this uh, joint program. And so we're now in the stage that we have all the data, but we are still digesting sort of all of the results. But I think that we now have a, a much better view as to how we think actually that water is, uh, is formed. And really, most of it actually happens on these uh, dust particles. So what you see here is a blow-up of a dust grain where maybe once a day, here you see it, a hydrogen atom actually lands on this grain. You also see the oxygen atoms. The hydrogen atoms find each other and take off as a hydrogen molecule, but you can also form a water molecule there. And here you see already another, an O2 molecule actually being formed. And now we make a uh, hydrogen peroxide radical. We make hydrogen peroxide, yes, here, and we actually form a, uh, a water molecule. And these were all processes that were, uh, now we zoom forward in time, fast forward, and that's then how we make our, uh, uh, our icy layer actually on the grain and, uh, um, and then end up actually with an, with an icy grain. So a lot of these processes were actually postulated already uh, uh, 30 years ago, but we simply didn't have the laboratory um, experiments in order to test these, uh, these hypotheses. And it's really, a, I think, a, a success story of, of the interaction between astronomy and uh, laboratory astrophysics that we've now been able to, to, to verify all of these processes in the lab and actually show also how they occur and measure their rate, uh, their rate constants. So we can then try to, to uh, quantify this then and, and look, for example, at here, one of these dark clouds. Uh, where we know that we have mostly ice in there, um, and then we can say, well, the water that we can actually see in the gas is basically a balance between the formation of water on these ices that I just showed you, and then getting the molecules back off the grains again, uh, back, into the, back into the gas phase. And that should then give us our signal in terms of, uh, of water that we get from this, uh, from this cloud. And that's indeed what we have observed as part of the WISH program. We have now detected for the first time basically the, the, the cold uh, gaseous water reservoir uh, with Herschel in one of these clouds, probably a cloud that is on the verge of, uh, of forming, of collapsing and forming a, uh, um, a new solar system. Um, and this signal that we see here is, is very much in agreement with sort of this theory of water formation and desorption that, that I just sketched to you. So it looks like we have uh, learned a lot about uh, the water formation in space. Um, it's also clear that the bulk of the water is already formed during this early stage. So the water molecules that you see here in this glass um, is, may well be the water molecules that were formed some four and a half billion years ago in the cloud out of which our own solar system formed. So that's an interesting thought to keep, uh, to keep with you. Um, we also see the water 
associated with the forming protostars. Here you see some beautiful example of the quality of the data that we're getting. Um, and it tells us that uh, some of the water is not only infalling, but some of the water is also outflowing uh, with very high velocities, up to 100 kilometers per second. And in fact, we see the water associated with these jets that, we, uh, uh, that are associated with all forming stars. And we can now even make maps of, of water um, associated with forming stars. So here is the, 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 the protostar, basically. And there you see the, the outflows, the bipolar outflows, which are lighting up in water. So basically what we're seeing here is maybe a young version of what our older, own solar system also looked like at some early stage uh, where it had basically these, these water fountains on uh, both sides. So this is basically where the, the water is, is lighting up. So to summarize so far, interstellar clouds clearly have a very rich uh, chemical composition in spite of the very cold and tenuous conditions. And complex molecules and water are actually basically found around nearly all the forming stars and throughout the Milky Way. And this means that at least the ingredients, uh, the building blocks for prebiotic material are widespread throughout uh, our Milky Way and presumably also through other galaxies. All right, so let's now form a star out of these clouds. We're now going to look a little bit more at the physics. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, just uh, collapsing and then forming a star is not so simple. There's a lot of physics that is actually associated with it, which I won't go into uh, during this uh, lecture. I just want to show it to you here in a, in a movie. Uh, that is actually based on uh, real data from the uh, uh, Hubble Space Telescope taken by Chris O'Dell and then turned into uh, a movie and uh, basically taking the data of making from the two-dimensional image, a three-dimensional image through which you can then zoom in uh, um, in a computer. And here we now go to an animation uh, where you actually see this uh, uh, envelope around the collapsing star and here you see the the young star itself with a rotating disk of gas and dust, um, and is this disk in which the planets can subsequently form. So let's look at this once more. Here we have our two-dimensional image, again of Orion. We're going to now fly through it. Um, and uh, what you see is already several of these protostars of collapsing clouds in which a new star is already being born. They are still embedded in their envelopes, uh, and these envelopes are uh, basically blown away by these, uh, by these jets and also by the radiation from the uh, young stars in the surroundings. And here we now go to the animation. The envelope is basically being dispersed. And what we see now is still the young star, but surrounded by this, this rotating disk of uh, uh, gas and dust um, um, in which the subsequent planets uh, uh, can form. And such a rotating disk is a very natural outcome of a collapsing cloud that has initially a little bit of rotation to go with. So here you see the uh, still image uh, from uh, uh, Hubble on which uh, the movie uh, was based. And you see already that you have to look really with a magnifying glass in order to see these young stars with their disks uh, surrounding them. And again, we can see them here as silhouettes against a uh, bright background. But these images, which are by now almost two decades old, were still very important to show the sizes of these disks. Um, because you can now put our own solar system at the distance of Orion, and then you can show that it is 
very much the same size. So showing that these disks actually uh, have sizes that are equivalent so to, say, uh, the, the, the distance from Sun to Pluto, which is some, uh, some 40 astronomical uh, units. So what we now know is that uh, nearly all the young stars in the, uh, in the surroundings uh, are, have these uh, disks. Um, that the sizes of the disks are comparable to the sizes of our own solar system, um, and also that the masses of these disks are usually enough to form a solar system. And that is about 1% of the mass of the Sun, or about 10 times the mass of the Jupiter. If you think about how much mass you needed to make our own solar system, um, that's uh, about 10 times uh, the mass of, of, uh, of Jupiter, because uh, some gas has been lost from the solar system during the formation. So this means also that our ingredients actually for planet formation are common. Um, that is also uh, something that we're finding uh, throughout. Okay, so but what is the problem? Well, here we go back to our Carina Nebula. And here we see these, these clouds and these we can easily resolve with current instrumentation. And even the collapsing cores, these collapsing regions, we can also still uh, uh, resolve with current instrumentation. But if I now take here a disk, and this is an artist's impression of a disk, then I wish it was as big as this on this scale, but it is not. It's uh, much smaller. So basically, if you would look at what this disk would be, it would really be sort of tiny, tiny, tiny on this, uh, on this scale. Um, and so this is really why we need an instrument like ALMA to basically zoom in on these regions and to have the sharpness in order to uh, to, study these, uh, to study these disks. So let's look a little bit about what we now know about these, uh, uh, about these disks. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit again about our water story, uh, because water plays an important role in planet formation. We know that in our solar system, and also in other solar systems, uh, there is the so-called snow line, um, which, as the word says already, it's the line uh, beyond which uh, uh, water actually exists as an ice, or you can also call it the ice line. Um, and that is at, uh, sort of close to uh, where Jupiter is, a little bit more inward uh, currently, but in the early solar system it was somewhere around where Jupiter uh, um, uh, now is. And if you actually freeze out water, and then you enhance the density of the solids, and that makes actually that your whole planet formation uh, process is actually more rapid, uh, where you're trying to basically get from these small dust particles to larger and larger dust particles. The inner part inside the ice line, that's where uh, water is mostly as a gas, um, and that's also where the water gets very hot. Um, and that is uh, water that we can actually observe with other telescopes, uh, more the infrared telescopes than, uh, they say, the, the Herschel and the ALMA telescopes. And so what we've actually been trying to do is we have been trying to uh, use uh, Herschel in order to detect the water gas, uh, because that is actually providing us with a direct uh, measure of how much ice there is uh, through the same sort of processes that I illustrated to you earlier for this collapsing cloud. Uh, the ice itself is very difficult to detect in these uh, disk clouds. And so this is one of the highlights of our uh, WISH program also, the detection of uh, cold water in uh, these disks, and uh, uh, shown here uh, from work from Michiel Hogerheide et al. Um, and uh, this signal actually we can translate into 
number of water molecules are there, and uh, since uh, Science magazine liked it, mostly the units of oceans, we translated this into oceans uh, of water, which is about 6,000 uh, oceans. Um, but uh, you can, of course, translate it also into grams or whatever, and I can give you the conversion factor uh, for that. But it shows already that this disk contains certainly enough water uh, to fill several oceans on a, on a new planet. The other thing that we've done is we've used actually ALMA, and these are data that were uh, released by the project as science verification. Basically, the project was trying to see whether ALMA was working well, and we had some old data showing these three lines here. And so they took these data and they said, ah, we see these three lines, that's great, uh, ALMA is working fine. Um, but even in its early stage, when this was still done with only 16 uh, antennas, uh, ALMA was already so sensitive that it saw not just these three lines, but it saw a whole bunch of other lines already appearing here in uh, these data. And together with Jaste Jorkensen from uh, the University of Copenhagen, we dug into these data and we discovered quickly that several of these uh, lines were due to interesting molecules, actually quite complex organic molecules. What we're looking at here is a forming protostar, a very low mass uh, protostar, nothing as big as Orion, but just a tiny little uh, star that is forming at the moment. And this tiny little star already had very complex molecules associated uh, with it. And even uh, quite complex ones like this, this little sugar here, the uh, glycolaldehyde. And moreover, Alma could already see so sharp um, that we could locate the, uh, the presence of these molecules to within 25 astronomical units from the source. So now we're no longer looking on large scales. No, now we're looking really on scales of these disks, uh, uh, well, basically corresponding to the uh, orbit of Uranus. Uh, and we are finding already these complex molecules there. So what we're seeing is that uh, both with Herschel, but now in, uh, particularly with ALMA, we're able to really zoom in into these uh, disks in which planets are forming and uh, uh, that we can actually characterize these, uh, um, their composition. Okay, back to a little bit of art. Um, what you see here is actually a English engraving from 1798. Uh, which is actually uh, hanging in our living room, um, and reminding us that already, uh, what is it, centuries ago, uh, artists were speculating that uh, our solar system is just one of many, and that these other solar systems don't need to look at all like our own solar system. Some of them have less planets, some of them have more planets, some of them are closer by, and some of them are further away. And this is exactly what is now being revealed by these detections of exoplanets, that there is a huge uh, diversity in planetary systems. And so the, that's, for example, what the Kepler satellite um, is, uh, is finding, uh, these huge diversities in, in planets. So, but where does this come from? Well, the answer lies clearly in the past, during the time that these were assembled, these planets. And that happened really in the disks, um, these rotating disks around the young stars, uh, which contain the material out of which they, they formed. So in a very simplistic way, what is happening is that this gas and dust, you know, that came from this collapsing cloud and that entered into this uh, disk, so of which we now know the ingredients, 
um, that basically these small dust particles started to coagulate and grow and grow into larger uh, particles. This is not as simple as it uh, looks here in this cartoon, and in fact, in my seminar tomorrow in the astronomy department, I will tell a lot more about these uh, uh, the detailed processes and what we are learning about this um, at the moment as to how these uh, uh, various particles can, uh, can coagulate. Um, but it's clearly happening, and some of that we can actually see in action, and these are some first results from the uh, ALMA uh, again, on these uh, disks in which we think that actually uh, planet formation is occurring at this moment. So this is an artist impression where we see one of these dusty disks, uh, but then some of these holes here, um, which are the locations in which, if we go back here, in which a planet uh, may have formed already, and which is basically clearing out its path by attracting the, the gas and the dust, and thereby creating this gap here in uh, these disks. We cannot see the young planet itself, but we can certainly see the result of what it has done, and namely creating this, this gap over here. And we are now starting to see this unprecedented sharpness, actually, uh, these, uh, these gaps and holes in these disks. And there are some surprises uh, associated with that uh, that I will tell you more about uh, again tomorrow. Okay, in the last few minutes, um, let me make the connection then uh, with our own early solar system. And let's go back to comets. Let's go back to comets like Comet uh, Halley, uh, Halley's Comet, uh, or Comet Hale-Bopp, a beautiful uh, example. A very bright comet in uh, 2005. A new comet that is coming, uh, Comet Penstars, that uh, will uh, uh, maybe somewhat later uh, in the year uh, will be uh, actually visible. Um, and uh, the good thing is that we now have these powerful telescopes that we can actually point at these comets um, and that we can then study their composition. So what are comets? Comets are basically these coagulated uh, icy dust grains um, grown to something like a kilometer in size or a few kilometers in size um, and which have most of their time um, spent in the outer part of our solar system where it was very cold and where they could basically be preserved. So we think that comets actually contain the most original primitive material that we have in our solar system. And so they tell us also something about the past. They tell us the story basically also of the formation of our own solar system. And so we can now point our powerful telescopes at these uh, comets and study their uh, uh, chemical uh, um, material that they have. And what we find actually is that uh, the chemical composition is, is actually very comparable to what we see with these interstellar ices, suggesting that these are indeed sort of a leftover of the formation process of our own solar system, the, the, basically the, uh, the building blocks that didn't make it into a comet and were scattered then into the outer solar system. Um, and we can actually make, try to make some connection then also what we see uh, uh, on Earth. Uh, there's one uh, big question, uh, namely whether comets actually did bring uh, the water on Earth. Where did the, the water on Earth actually come from? And again, thanks to HiFi, we have uh, another part of this uh, uh, story, uh, because HiFi uh, Herschel could observe not just water, but also the deuterated version, HDO, uh, where one hydrogen is uh, um, replaced by a heavier uh, version of hydrogen, deuterium. And it's actually this ratio uh, which you then can compare with the ratio that we have of water in, uh, in the oceans on Earth. 
And that is thought to be a diagnostics of what the, uh, um, the, the, the original material was that brought this water on Earth. Um, and what uh, Herschel actually found is, is at least two comets in which this uh, ratio is within 20% exactly the same as we have in uh, water in, in our own oceans. Previously, there had been uh, measurements that suggested at least a factor of two discrepancies, but that factor of two has gone away with these new measurements, suggesting that there is at least one family of comets that has the right isotopic composition and it could have delivered uh, the water on Earth. Now, you may already think of delivering water on Earth, how does that, how does that work? Um, <laughs> because uh, if you have a, a, an impact, uh, then uh, a lot of things can, of course, happen. Um, and in fact, if you have a, a massive uh, impact of a very big object, uh, maybe a Mars-sized object that uh, impacted our own, on, on early Earth, uh, then it's clear that not much of the uh, water and organic material that is present in these comets that it would actually uh, survive. Uh, we think that actually an impact uh, phenomenon like this was uh, responsible for the formation of, uh, of our own moon. Um, so you don't need to do it this, you should not do it this way because then, uh, then not, not much is left. Um, so you do try to do it a little bit uh, more gentle, so not a larger uh, comet, uh, and, uh, and maybe sort of uh, having the comet disintegrating and, and bringing it in smaller pieces uh, on Earth so that, it, uh, so that it can still survive. But this is obviously also still one of the big uh, questions as to how you make this, uh, this work uh, exactly. Finally, um, if you want to link it then with exoplanets, um, then uh, the next step in this research is basically to look uh, for the chemical ingredients, not just of the, the star-forming regions or the planet-forming regions in which the stars and planets are being made, but actually look at mature planets and look there at their chemical compositions. And so this is the big goal for the next generation of uh, optical infrared telescopes, such as the extremely large telescope that have actually the power to take spectra of these, uh, uh, of these exoplanets and determine their com composition. I think the, one of the main messages of my story, of this lecture actually, is that a lot of this chemical composition can and is already determined at the time of their formation, namely at the location in the disk where they were formed, whether they were formed inside the snow line or outside the snow line, um, and the same actually for the, the, the carbon-rich uh, material. So let me then end with uh, this uh, summary. Uh, we started off with clouds. We saw that they have actually a very rich uh, chemical composition. You've seen that out of these clouds, uh, uh, they, they can collapse to form a young star, and that these young stars are surrounded by disks. We are now starting to determine the chemical composition of this uh, material here in these disks. We know that uh, out of these disks, through the coagulation of the grains, we can actually form planets. Uh, much of the same material that we had here is actually transported to these disks, is also transported to the icy bodies in these uh, uh, new solar systems, um, such as you see over here. And uh, some of that material can indeed then also have been brought onto these uh, new planets. Of course, the stars, also our sun, doesn't have eternal life, so at some stage they will run out of nuclear fuel and they will die off, that they will swell and they will become much, much bigger, they will swallow basically much of our solar system. They will also then return some of the heavy elements that they 
made in their nucleus through nuclear burning, um, like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and they bring that back to the interstellar medium, and then a whole new cycle of star formation, planet formation, and then stellar death, planetary death, can start again. And of course, in our own Milky Way, this cycle has occurred already uh, uh, several times. So to sum, sum up then, uh, chemical ingredients um, are present throughout space, and they are associated with uh, basically all the forming stars. Planetary systems are possible around the majority of stars, whether they actually form um, is still a bit of a question, although the exoplanet statistics seem to indicate that at least uh, one planet uh, per star is, is certainly the uh, possibility. Uh, the formation process is now being actually uh, unraveled with the new telescopes, the new instrumentation. They are basically driving the science, Herschel, Alma, and our next goal is really to image the physics and chemistry on these solar uh, system scales. So I'll leave you with this thought of bringing art and science and astronomy again together. Uh, the Australian Aboriginals already had a Milky Way dreaming. Um, Comets, favored already in some of the dreams that you see of the artists. As astronomers, we have dreamt for more than 30 years. We have dreamt of Herschel, we have dreamt of Alma, and now these facilities are with us, and we are doing fantastic science with them. Thank you very much.